0: Hello to you, one and all. Graham Norton here, welcoming you to this meeting of my book club. We have a rich array of books and stories to enjoy and discuss, and helping me lead the conversation is that wonderful woman of words, Alex Clark. Hello.
1: Hello there.
0: Are you fully recovered now? I am
1: absolutely fine. I couldn't be more tickety-boo. I am facing into the spring with joy in my heart.
0: Marvellous. And what are you actually reading at the moment? I never ask you this.
1: Well, you know what? I have got a teetering stack. And in fact, I must say, this may be too much information. My husband walked past my side of the bed and said, you need to sort this out. It's like Tracy Emin lives here. And so, you know, that is largely books, I have to say. And it is teetering, a teetering, teetering pile. I've just read the wonderful Old God's Time by Sebastian Barry. But I've also been reading uh, Salman Rushdie's new book. Uh, Victory City, which is such an enjoyable read. It's a great sort of historical, whatever, sort of fantasy of medieval India. It's terribly good.
2: And
0: this is the one, he he wrote this before uh, the attack?
1: He did. He had essentially just sort of handed in, as I understand it, the edits on it. Uh, and now it comes out. And he has been in recovery from the attack on him. He was on stage at a sort of literary retreat uh in upstate new york in august of last year and he was attacked uh, by a man with a knife and suffered severe injuries but also that has had an impact on his ability to write he says you know he has been sitting at the desk and waiting for the words to come and they haven't been coming they are starting to flow again but perhaps one of the most interesting things that he said was that he may indeed Write about what happened to him in the form of memoir. He doesn't think it's subject for fiction. He doesn't think it's a third person account. He thinks it is a first person account. He was, of course, the author of a huge uh, memoir called Joseph Anton a few years ago. And this may, in fact, be the second part of it. We, we will wait and see. Yeah.
0: Well, certainly it will get him writing again if he writes about it, will Yes. Won't it? Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: exactly. Uh, well, all right, it's time to don your headsets and grab your mice because our book this week is Gabrielle Evan's story of friendship, love and gaming. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Here to discuss it are Gabby, who chose it for us, Vashini, Jeff and Cherie. Hello, everybody.
3: Hello. Hi. Oh. Hi.
0: And I believe a happy birthday is in order for Gabby.
4: Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, I've had... A very full weekend, quite physically, with so many meals. Did you get a cake? I got a carrot cake, always.
0: Cherie looks slightly disgusted by the idea of a carrot cake for your birthday. Sorry,
4: did you register that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I did.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's
1: my
3: favourite. Cherie, I'm a bit with you. It's, It's not really cake, is it? It's salad, really. I'm a Christmas baby, so I get a Christmas cake for my birthday, which I hate. Cake, just sugar, just sugar for me, please. And
0: and you should be able to feel the sugar eating your teeth as you as you consume it.
3: <laughs> yeah, the heart rate should go up. You should be having palpitations. <laughs> and uh, and
0: Varshini, you have you've done something very clever online this week.
5: So me and my friends have got Beyonce tickets Woo-hoo, after what woo. I can only describe as a battle <sighs> to the death. Um, it took 3 tries and on the first 2 tries I think we were like 200,000th for one of the shows in the queue. It was it was war out there. But um we did get them eventually. Getting Glastonbury flashbacks. I was too stressed.
0: <laughs> and Jeff, uh, there's been some drama at your house. Uh, what what's your dog been up to now? Doug the pug
6: decided to peer out of the living room window, which meant he toppled from the back of the settee into the tortoise enclosure. I could hear him barking, but I couldn't figure out where he was. I thought he was upstairs. Uh, But no, he was trapped with the tortoise.
0: Did he wake the tortoise up?
6: Yeah, the tortoise wasn't a very happy tortoise.
1: Oh, can you imagine? It's not like he can speed <laughs> off, is it? Really?
0: But but luckily we got him out before he bit him. You don't keep your tortoise in the fridge over winter. Is that a thing? They were talking about it. They were talking about on the radio the other day that in the oh. winter you put you put your your tortoise in the fridge.
3: Which shelf? <laughs> a salad, drawer, salad drawer, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> no, under under.
6: No, uh, the axolotl goes in the fridge uh, when when it needs to, but oh. the uh, the tortoise has got a very large. It's almost like a, a huge coffin behind the settee uh, that it sort of roams <laughs> around in.
0: Uh, all right, we'll come back to you in a bit to find out whether you loved tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow on every level, or if there were just too many bugs. After we've spoken to Gabrielle Seven herself, and after Alex has given us her three of the best, Alex, don't tell me you are giving us hacks for Fortnite and Grand Theft Auto. I know you.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I suppose I could give you the odd tip for Tetris, but that's about <laughs> as far as it goes. I'm not one of Live's gamers, and believe me, it, it's not. I just don't think I'd be very good at it, Graham. I've got no hand-eye coordination, very yeah. little patience. Books are the perfect technology for me. I'm
0: so with you, yeah. <laughs> I say I don't play games because I have tried, and I just no. thought, no, not, just not for me. Completely
1: yeah. rubbish, so we stick with, with the word. Um, so, uh, no, I, this is a book about friendship, uh, and I thought, well, there are lots of books about friends, but what about books about enemies and feuds and vendettas? And that is where I have gone this week.
0: Ooh, juicy. Well, as long as we remain (laughs) pals. Always. In the meantime, here's some psychological insight into the other side of that coin.
7: There are so many ways to be a friend that it's impossible to do justice to them all, especially because attitudes to friendship diverge according to background, upbringing, age and geography. Ghanaians are more likely to advocate caution towards making friends and to emphasise the need for practical assistance, for instance. Americans, by contrast, have larger friendship networks and are more likely to emphasise companionship and emotional support. Chinese adolescents are concerned with the moral quality of close friendship, whereas their Western counterparts focus predominantly on interaction, intimacy and keeping promises.
0: Author, journalist and presenter of the smash hit podcast, How to Fail, Elizabeth Day, has turned her attention to friendship in her new book, Friendaholic, Confessions of a Friendship Addict. And we'll hear more about that later on in our talking book slot. Okay, time to turn to Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. The book begins with a chance meeting in a subway station. Sam and Sadie have been estranged for six years, but as children they were inseparable. They met in the hospital where Sam was recovering from a terrible car accident and Sadie was visiting her gravely ill sister. They bonded over a shared love of computer games and became each other's best friend until a misunderstanding split them up. Now both students, Sadie gives Sam a game she's made herself to try out. He loves it. It's the beginning of their collaboration, creating computer games, with their first joint venture, Ishigo, becoming a bestseller. They form a company, together with Sam's roommate and later Sadie's boyfriend, Mark's. Over the course of three decades, we follow them through the hits and flops, the misunderstandings and fights, the love and the loss of their personal and professional lives. At the heart of it all, the relationship that started in that hospital waiting room all those years ago. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is Gabrielle Zevin's tenth novel. The title comes from the first line of a speech by Macbeth about the futility of life which appears in one of Sadie's games. The book quickly topped all the bestseller lists when it came out and was Amazon's number one book of 2022. Her previous 2014 title, The Storied Life of A.J. Fickrey, became a movie and she's currently writing the screenplay for this one. When we spoke, I wanted to know what it was that drew her to writing a story centred around computer games.
8: The first generation of people to play video games as children were born in the late 1970s um, and early 1980s. And so now they're kind of turning into their 50s. And so I kind of thought the time was right to address a generation of people that had had video games as a form of storytelling, you know, indistinguishable from novels or movies or the other types we might have consumed. So I think that's sort of where the seed of it started from. But you have many ideas and most of them are not worth following. <laughs> You know, like an idea kind of needs to attract a lot of other ideas to it. And so when it came to video games... The great thing for me about it was that it was a way to talk about the whole world and what it was like to be a person for the last 30 years, a person and an artist through the lens of video games. And I think it's true if you look at the history of of anything, the history of bread making, the history of Ireland, the history of whatever you're going to talk about, you actually get some version of what it is to be a person in a particular time and place.
0: One of the things I really liked about it was the narration. Every now and again, you just drop in a little subtle clue that the narrator knows the end of the story. You know, things like right. drinking was something that they never took to, or we know that the game's going to be a success. How did you pace yourself doing that? When did you know, oh, this is a good time to just remind the reader?
8: You know, I don't know that I had a master plan about that, except insofar as if you are the narrator of a novel, um, you do know everything. You know, so the other points of view that are not omniscient, you know, in a sense, you're pretending that you don't know things. What I hope the effect of that would be was to let you know that this was a story of importance, because what I knew people felt about video games was that they were not worthy of discussion. you know. And so I think it was a way of positioning this novel as in the future and in a place where the thing that I'm talking about matters. Like I have found in the months I've been promoting the book that so many people are sort of dismissive of the topic of video games, don't want to pick up the novel, don't see it as relevant to their lives in any way. This despite the fact that if you use any kind of social media, you are definitely playing a video game of some kind. And so I think that's what that technique was about for me. And
0: these three friends, uh, how easily did you come to these three friends? Were they all in your head? Did you meet them in the order we meet them? How did that happen?
8: I wouldn't say they came particularly easily. I think I had this idea for this novel maybe five years ago, and for a long time was a little bit frightened of it, you know, and I had maybe like the opening scene of it. And I I knew that it was about video games and that it began in a train station in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The beginning of writing a novel is like, it's like going to a party where you don't know anybody and you're sort of making awkward party conversation with like everybody at this party. And so you kind of like get a detail or two and then hopefully something clings to that, you know. And so for me, the first detail I had with Sam was, was very small, just that he was wearing an oversized coat. And learning, like, where that oversized coat had come from led me to Mark's, you know. And, and so some of these relationships were, you know, things that I discovered as I went
0: And also, I think a lot of people are surprised as they read the book and they come to the source of the title.
8: Mm.
0: You know, you don't expect it to be a Shakespearean quote, but it is. Did you think, oh, I'm very clever when you got to that bit? Or had you always known that was going to be the title?
8: Well, other than a sense of an ending, I like to know what the title is going to be. And I think for a long time, I did not know the title of this book. I think I was maybe, for me, quite late, which is at least halfway through before I knew what the title would be. And I knew that what I wanted the title to do was, again, have a sense of elevating what video games are in most people's minds. And so I was happy to think about... uh about the speech from Macbeth. It's probably the first bit of Shakespeare that I ever committed to memory, and I can still do it on command if asked. And you know, it's one of the bleakest speeches in all of Shakespeare, but the character who invokes it in my novel finds great hope in it. The idea that every day we're alive is a chance to start again. And it's also conveniently a metaphor for video games with their infinite lives and infinite chances at redemption. So for me, it felt like the title that I wanted. Um, There was a, a large debate at my publisher about whether we would include the commas, because Shakespeare does, you know, um, and so I'm, I'm happy to report that, th- that we did include "Tomorrow comma" and "Tomorrow commas." So there are <laughs> two commas.
0: <laughs> yeah, for Shakespeare fans, oh, yeah, there they are.: For Shakespeare you know <laughs> yeah.
8: I think that breath is important, and I love commas as punctuation because they're a thing that reminds you to breathe. there's something that says that the text is alive and you reading it are alive. I'm thinking about you, you know so anyway, um, I'm kind of a punctuation mark nerd.
0: And, and uh, talk to us about the games. How hard was it to come up with games that would be believably huge <laughs> hits?
8: Um, well, I didn't have the burden of an actual game designer, you know, in terms of like these having to be playable or these actually having to be huge hits. The only burden I had was that of the novelist and the storyteller. And so what I wanted to show in the book was the ways in which things in your life become the work that you do. You know, and so that was the thing that motivated me uh, when I was making most of the games. And also, again, just doing research. like you know, Because the book takes place over a long span of time, I looked at all the lists of what were the best sellers for that year, what the technology would have allowed you to do in that given year. And so between all of those things, it was easier than one would think to come up with, I think, games that were plausible.
0: And how conscious were you of readers like me who I'm not literate in in video games at all, and yet you never I never felt at sea you never lost me. Were you thinking of the dullards like me reading this book
8: um I wasn't worried about you to be honest <laughs> you know, so I wrote the book. I mean, I was worried about you, Graham Norton, but I wasn't (laughs) worried about you generally. Um, So I started researching the book in 2018, put it aside, and then the pandemic hits. And, you know, you're suddenly in this, like, this vacuum. In many ways, pandemic, terrible time. But as a writer, what it did was it sort of silenced everything. And I could kind of, like, forget that there was an audience Until after. And then I was like, oh, my God, I've written like a 520 page novel about video games. Like what? What?" (laughs) You know, it's like 2021 and you're back in the world again. If anything, it was enormously informative to thinking about a, a writer's process going forward, how much really it's helpful to not think about readers when you're doing it. You're delusional if you act as if there isn't an audience, you know, and yet you have to kind of forget about them, too, at the same time
0: um gabby humphreys she was the clubber who uh chose the book and she wants to know you know you've had huge success before you've had bestsellers you've had a film adaptation and yet it seems the level of excitement and attention this book has gotten is is on another level uh mm. did you kind of know this was going to be a big one or when do when does a, a clue phone start ringing that oh this is this is different
8: For many years, when you're, I think, any kind of artist, there's a huge gap between um, your ability and your taste. And I was conscious of that for, I think, all of my other novels. And when I finished this particular novel, I remember feeling completely at peace with what I had done for the first time ever in my career. And I said to my partner, I don't care what happens with this, because for the first time, I've written something that I conceived of that turned out very close to the way I imagined it, which had never happened for me before. Really great things started to happen for the book kind of immediately. And, but the weird thing was I almost felt numb as they were happening because I had already decided how I felt about it, and I knew I had never felt that way before.
0: Well, congratulations. Uh, listen, there's some <laughs> questions we ask everybody who come on the podcast. Uh, the first yes. one is uh, the name of a book that you remember turning you on to reading, that it kind of opened <laughs> up the word of books.
8: I don't know, do you read Charlotte's Web a great deal in the UK?
0: We certainly know what it is, yeah.
8: In a way, I would describe it as a heartwarming children's version of Animal Farm. It,
0: yeah, it is, really, yeah.
8: <laughs> um, but I remember reading that for the first time and just, just being completely uh, enraptured. And I think it's the first time I ever cried reading a novel, which turns out to be something I really, really like to do. Um, and, you know, in terms of the first time... I realized I might want to write literary fiction. I think that novel for me was probably Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. You know, it's, it's a novel that really expanded my understanding of what fiction uh, might be. Wow. Uh,
0: second book is a book that not enough people know about.
8: I always think there's a sort of kismet to the kind of books any person reads, you know. So I'm always like, I don't know that I would ever tell anybody to definitely read one book because part of the magic of reading is the things you just come across. But, you know, a novelist I really love is Vikram Seth. I think if people know him, they know him from A Suitable Boy. But the two novels of his that I really love are The Golden Gate and An Equal Music. Both of them are love stories. Oh. Oh, you know them. I'm so excited. Golden
0: Gate, I one of my favorite, favorite novels.
8: It is such a brilliant novel. Yeah. It really depicts Northern California in the mid-1980s well. You would think that a novel entirely composed in sonnets would not read well, but it reads remarkably well. I just think it's it's just a beautiful novel.
0: And, and finally, maybe you've mentioned it already, uh, a book that you liked so much you wish you had written it. You're jealous of it.
8: You know, it's funny. I'm basically the kind of person who, when I read a book that I love, I don't wish I'd written it. I just like tear it apart and try to learn new techniques from it. And I remember the first time I really had that experience, I was probably 20 years old, and I read A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving, and I immediately thought that this was the kind of book I wanted to write. You know, a big emotional novel that uh, has something to do, but like with faith and what it is to be like a human being on the planet. And I just remember immediately going back to the beginning to see how it was done
0: gabrielle zevin on what she learned from john irving and her own novel tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and alex human relationships are tricky things and they sometimes go wrong which of course is a great source of inspiration for writers
1: Yes, well, happiness, you know, writes white, as we know. And there are not an awful lot of books about very, very happy relationships and friendships, are there? I mean, that tends to, they stop at page three. So one of my favourite books, actually, from one of my favourite writers is A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley, published in 1991, and a sort of retread set on an Iowa farm uh, of King Lear. However... Blow me if it hasn't already been mentioned. I mean, in in many ways, Emma Donoghue choosing it as a book that she really likes just sort of massively uh, puts me in the frame as a great chooser of books, don't you think?
0: (laughs) Yes, good taste. Good taste, well shared.
1: Good taste, me and Emma. But I thought, okay, uh, so we've got that one in the bag. I will instead go to the wonderful books by Edward St. Orbin, the Patrick Melrose books, which I think we should say are not entirely for the faint hearted. They are about the terrible sufferings of a man of enormous wealth and privilege and properties in the south of France and West London and the whole thing. But he has suffered the most horrible sexual abuse by his father when he's a very small child. And that traumatic history is what essentially powers these five novels, his own descent into addiction and alcoholism. Uh, They obviously sound like Immensely hard going, don't they, Graham? But but they're not in a way.
0: Yeah, because it's the writing that saves it. The story is as bleak as you describe, but the way he tells it is just fabulous. Mm. Now that's five books. Really, we should stop there, but I'm letting you have another two. So <laughs> w- w- what's your second that's kind
1: one? Of six, if you put Jane Smiley. In. <laughs> Book number two now, obviously revenge in romantic and frequently marital relationships is a real staple of fiction but has anyone done it better than Faye Weldon in The Lives and Loves of a She-Devil, her novel from 1983. She came back years and years later and did a sort of a, a kind of updated version of it but it's the original that I'm focusing on today. It tells the story of Ruth who is not the most you know, sparkling and fragrant emblem of domestic harmony. She and her husband, Bobbo, her horrible, faithless husband, Bobbo, is playing away. He's playing away with romantic novelist Mary Fisher. And Ruth just takes the terribly, she thinks, I'm going to take my revenge where I can get it. So she burns the house down for example, uh, so that her children have to go and live with Bobbo and his new mistress. She goes to work at uh, the mother of Mary Fisher's care home so that her mother gets expelled and has to go. So she does everything that she can to ruin the life of her faithless husband and his new mistress, and then turns herself into this extraordinary businesswoman, undergoes numerous uh, procedures and essentially she takes her revenge.
0: Wow. I mean, I I don't, I haven't read it, but I've seen the TV adaptation in the film and it is such a great story. So thanks for reminding me to go back and to the source, to the source material. Our third book.
1: Well, having said that a thousand acres takes from King Lear here, we're going the way of Hamlet and nutshell by Ian McEwan, a book from six, seven years ago. Now, Will you stay with me when I say the next words, is narrated by a
0: fetus? (laughs) I'm just popping the kettle on, you keep talking.
1: Listeners will know that whenever I introduce a radical new uh, narrative concept to Graham, I have to, I have to sort of take him with me. Okay. Now, stay with yes. me, Graham. I do understand that this, this nutshell, it's the, the nutshell of, of, you know, he's bounded in this infinite space uh, to take Hamlet's words. There he is, and he can hear everything that is going on in the outside world. But obviously, because he's a fetus and because he's trapped inside his mother's womb, he is absolutely powerless to do anything when he hears his mother plotting with her lover to get rid of his father. So, you know, there we are straight in the world of of Hamlet, aren't we?
0: Wow. Um, Harder to stage, I imagine, this (laughs) version.
1: It's really interesting, but it's very short. There we are. I'm pulling you back now. Aren't I? I'm getting you back on, back on side. It's very short. It's very concise. Uh, but I found, you know, and it is that kind of book you think, oh, this is a sort of experiment. And am I going to go with this? So obviously you do have to surrender yourself to it completely. And a lot of it, because McCune is a brilliant writer of London apart from anything else. I mean, not only London, but those London streets. A lot of it uh, centres around sort of properties and property prices and property deals. I found it really, really invigorating and interesting.
0: You've turned it around. Uh, Thank you very much, (laughs) Alex. And if you've been too busy trying to rescue Princess Peach to note down the books we've mentioned so far, just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the titles we've mentioned. Okay, time to boot up our discussion about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Logging in are junior doctor and library enthusiast, Varshini Vajekumar. Hello. Hi. Part-time librarian and full-time phone salesman, Jeff Watson. G'day. Hello, Graham. Fashion writer, ladies lit squad founder and northerner in the south, Sheree Millington. Hello. Hi. And PhD candidate, lecturer and Instagram book reviewer, Gabby Humphries, who chose the book for us. And I guess before we begin, I should point out to anyone listening who's thinking, I might read that. Uh, There are going to be spoilers in this chat, so uh, maybe come back to it later. Uh, Gabby, what was it about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow that uh, attracted you? Oh
4: gosh, so much. Um, To me, this book just felt special and I just fell in love with each world. Obviously the present world, flicking between time, but with Sadie and Sam, but then each game world absolutely had my attention and that's Quite unexpected. I don't really like games, but this surprised me. It felt nostalgic and comforting, and I guess we all have some kind of nostalgic history with games. Um, And then the fact that this book covered so much more than games really gave it a tick for me. You know, the covers of mental health and identity. I just love this book. I'm so excited we get to discuss it.
2: Uh,
0: Let's go to Jeff next, because I imagine... Well, I'm not a gamer, but I did enjoy this book. Uh, Did did you, Jeff? Yeah, I did.
6: I mean, I have played (laughs) quite a lot of games over the years, and for me, it was a little bit of a nostalgia trip, especially when they were playing things like Mario Land, getting all the way to the top of the pole. I really did enjoy the games in the book and I thought the ones that the games company actually put together could have been real games and I thought that was quite a nice little touch there. I think generally overall, I really seriously enjoyed this book. I thought it was a very, very good book.
3: I've
4: made a comeback! (laughs) We fell out last time. <laughs> that, that strikes
1: me as, as kind of crucial, really. When you're inventing anything, any sort of artefact, and you're putting it in a novel, if you think this couldn't exist in the universe of the book, then that's just game over, isn't
0: it? Well done. Oh, Alex, very nice. clever. <laughs> I enjoyed yeah, that. Oh,
1: yeah.
5: I can do the words. <laughs> Let's
1: move on to
0: Varshney. Uh, Varshney, what was your, your takeaway from this book? Did you enjoy it?
5: I really enjoyed it. I don't think of myself as much of a gamer, but I guess I think it's the nostalgia factor of looking back on different games that are part of our childhood I think more than that it's a really intimate book I think the relationships are so strong and so well formed there's something so special about relationships that are so long with so many memories and just exploring the different ways that those work I thought was really special
0: and it's interesting that the games kind of bring us right up to date, and yet there's something about this book that's sort of old fashioned. Did you, did you find that, Cherie?
3: Yeah, it's one of the. I agree with you, Vashney. It's I love a tale that follows characters from childhood right mm. the way through to adulthood. I get a real sense of comfort knowing that this happens in the end. <laughs> they do get together. They don't get together. They have a baby. Am I allowed to say that something really sad happens and that someone dies? And I did think that was unnecessary. Okay. Oh, oh, did you think that was
6: unnecessary? I actually thought it was one of the few inexplicable bits of the book, actually.
0: Jeff, I'm interested. Why inexplicable?
6: Uh, because the character who dies didn't need to go into the situation where
0: that happened. But didn't it make him heroic? Didn't it make him sort of, you know, this faultless kind of object of affection? <sighs> Okay, made him an idiot. Okay.
3: (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Oh. Well, let's actually let's
0: talk about Marx, because of the three characters, I felt Marx was the most kind of one note in a way, in that, you know, Sam and Sadie were fully realised. Did anyone else find that Mark was a little thinner?
4: I did, but I almost enjoyed that. I found him to be mysterious and I think it was almost intentional. Um, so the fact that it was him who ended up dying, I think, worked because that really cut me up. I really wanted to know more. I feel like I already knew about Sam and Sadie, whereas like, I miss Marx now.
5: So I really like Marx as a character, and I agree that maybe he isn't as complex as Sam and Sadie, but I think the novel might have felt a bit too full if their friend also was grappling with a lot of the questions that they were. And it was quite nice to have someone to be the uncomplicated heart of the novel. And I actually do think it made sense for him to die because a lot of the narrative deals with random tragedy in a world that is uncontrollable, whereas the games that they make, all of the things that happen, even the tragic sequences are pre-programmed and they always know what's going to happen. Even if there are several outcomes, there are always things that they've planned. And in the real world, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. I think in Marx's death and Sam's, mother's death. I think the way that Gabrielle Zevin like speaks about grief and shows how like bereavement affects different people was really well done.
0: And Cherie, in terms of the, I mean, there is romance in this book, but Sam and Sadie, it, it's not really a will they, won't they thing, is it?
3: They're no Ross and Rachel, are they? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> they really reminded me of the characters from Sally Rooney's Normal People in that oh. the communication between them, <laughs> as a as a reader, was so irritating because. So they had these big feelings on the tip of their tongues, but to each other, they just couldn't get past these minor transgressions and these small arguments. Mm-hmm. And then they turned into these huge rifts, whereas a simple, this is how I'm feeling, this mm-hmm. is what I've done. And they were both very, very similar characters. And I think that's why we needed Marx, because mm-hmm. he contained what they mm-hmm. lacked. Yeah, they were
6: almost like real people. The lack of communication between them was like what actually happens in life. Because it's only in stories that we really say what we feel. <laughs> we never really say that in real life, do we?
0: <laughs> and, it did, I mean, this book, was anyone surprised by that idea that it was quite old-fashioned in a way, despite all the, the bells and whistles?
4: It did surprise me because, you know, it's marketed as contemporary fiction and it is everywhere online. It was, you know, like one of the top-selling books of last year. It really did blow up. So seeing that was interesting, but I loved Gabrielle saying that actually it made sense to set it a bit earlier on. So it was perfect for the audience with everybody now having an experience of games. I found that really interesting.
3: Yeah, and it was kind of the history of video games so she had to mm -hmm. start their journey at kind of the birth Mm. of video games in their like primitive form Mm -hmm. up to now and it could have been very like peel peel matrix but I liked that (laughs) 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 that's what I was expecting (laughs) I was expecting a little bit more shininess and techiness but I know what you mean Graham it's it's still kind of a
1: conventional narrative structure, isn't it? It's a tale and the fact that it's about a non-material space, a game space, doesn't really make any difference to that. Uh,
0: let's get on to how likely you are to recommend this book to somebody. Let's start with Varsni. varshni how likely would you be to recommend this book to a friend?
5: I've already recommended it to quite a few friends and promised that they can borrow it after this Yay. recording. So yeah, 10. Oh, wow. I just think it's such a lovely, tender story at its heart. And there's just so many beautiful little moments of these, like, highlights of relationships. I I just think it's lovely.
0: Uh, Jeff, how likely are you to recommend this book? Well, my copy of the book
6: is already on the shelves at the Lytton Phil, which is the library that I actually work in in Newcastle, and it's actually getting lent out. It actually went out on uh, Saturday... Ten out of ten. I do recommend it, and I shall continue
0: doing so. Gabby, you oh, oh, times! This ten times
4: best birthday present ever. <laughs> let's,
0: let's see if Cherie is going to keep the tens coming. Uh, how likely are you to recommend this book?
3: That's that's a lot of pressure. It, it is. <laughs> I won't. I won't give it a ten. Oh. Just because. You cow. <laughs> there are other books that 10s, but it's a solid nine the cover I will say is a 10 very beautiful but yeah everyone will enjoy oh, this book
4: stunning. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and
0: uh Gabby I'm guessing it's a 10 from you
4: oh obviously yeah it's a 10 I would do 11 if I could so it gets full marks but we won't break the rules I just think this book is so special and it really connects with everybody I'm I'm in the best mood hearing that other people loved it. This is a success.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I must say, I loved it too. It's very, I, think, I can't remember a time when we've all liked a book as much no. as this. No, what yeah. a
4: lovely conversation.
0: <laughs> anyway, uh, let's get on to what we are reading next time. Uh, it's the turn of Jeff, Jeff Watson. What are you picking for us for the next time?
6: I've chosen an absolute icon of the uh, literary scene. Over the past 50 years, uh, I've chosen a book by Alan Bennett, which is called The Uncommon Reader. It's a novelette, not a very long book, a book about what would happen if the Queen actually got involved with reading and became focused on reading rather than actually opening bridges, etc.,
0: well, I'm looking forward to finding out what everyone thinks about uh, Alan Bennett's The On Common Reader. Thank you very much for discussing tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And I'll talk to you along the way, clubbers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
3: Oh, we kind of so... <laughs>
0: That's a harmony. I know. Beautiful. It was like a Bulgarian choir. <laughs> <laughs> now, time for talking books and some useful psychological analysis. A healthy
7: friendship involves reciprocal stretching to accommodate each other's shifting needs, but we don't have to stretch if we don't want to. Some relationships will be worth it and others won't. If there's too much stretching in one direction, the muscles of the friendship become out of whack. This is what happened with me and Ella.
0: Elizabeth Day is a journalist and author with several novels, her most recent title, Magpie, was a bestseller in 2021, and non-fiction books to her name. Her hit podcast, How to Fail, talks to high-profile people about how they've dealt with things going wrong in their lives, and it led to a book, Philosophy, collecting together some of that wisdom. She has now turned her attention to friendship with Friendaholic, Confessions of a Friendship Addict, for which she's voiced the audiobook. I spoke to her and started with what it was about this topic that inspired her to write a book about it.
7: I think it was two things. One is that my agent gave me very good advice, which is you should only write what you're passionate about. And after I'd listed cats and books and cheese, (laughs) which you could write a book about, but it probably wouldn't be that involving, I landed on friendship because friendship has been, I think, the most consistent love affair of my life. It's seen me through life's highs and lows. And I just genuinely don't know what I'd do without my friends. Number two was that we lived through a pandemic. I don't know if you realise, Graham, but we lived through a pandemic. I'm taking notes. (laughs) And our diaries emptied overnight. And it really made a lot of us, I think, reassess who we were spending our time with, and what friendship actually meant, because we were all in a state of enforced isolation. And so the pandemic really made me think about friendship in a much deeper way. And I realised that, There isn't really the language to express it because as a society and for many, many centuries, really, we've elevated romantic love and we've forgotten to apply any sort of thinking or vocabulary to friendship.
0: And in the book, it it is a lot about female friendships, but there is a chapter I noticed on women becoming friends with men, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, it seems like, particularly, you know, straight women, straight men. Yes. That seems a very rare friendship group.
7: Yes you're right it's partly seen through the lens of my personal experience I do interview 5 of my friends in the book but one of them is my dear friend Satnam who is a straight man and we were set up together on a date and that's how we properly met and we realized quite quickly that there was no sexual chemistry and that we would be far better as friends and that led me into an exploration as you say of the when Harry met Sally conundrum that idea which seems a bit retrograde now can straight men and straight women ever of a truly be friends without the sex part getting in the way. And I decided that we could because I feel like every relationship on this planet has an intrinsic nature. And that led me into looking at lots of different kinds of friendships from lots of different gender perspectives and what friendship might mean for people who, for instance, are marginalised and therefore require friendship as a kind of allyship, as well as just whether Satnam and I can be friends without having sex, which I'm glad to say we can. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) few (laughs) I know I'm very interested to hear from you Graham because I did speak to a number of men for the book and men generally speaking I think have a slightly different attitude to friendship where I think they have fewer friends and a lot of men when they hit middle age tend to hemorrhage friends because their lives get too busy doing other things what's your experience do you have lots of friends She said, pointedly.
0: (laughs) Well, no, I have quite a few, but I think, I think there was a thing where I shed a lot of friends in my forties because my life was going a different direction than theirs. And then I kind of made new friends sort of unexpectedly in my fifties, which I wasn't expecting to do. Because, you know, you kind of think, oh, friends are done now. But actually, I think one of the nice things about getting older is that you do make new friends and good friends and deep friendships that you didn't expect. I don't know if it's the same for you.
7: I love hearing that. I think it is the same because I'm 44 now and it's taken me until now Even to have a passing real acquaintanceship with myself, like I I feel I fully understand myself now in a way that I didn't when I was in my 20s. And when you're in your 20s, you do make a lot of friends, but they're not necessarily friends that will sustain you through life because they're
0: not necessarily the friends that know you as
7: you really, really are
0: underneath it all. So here's the thing. You interview friends in the book. and I remember being at a birthday party once and the hostess decided in her speech, and there were lots of people at this party, she decided to name her seven best friends. It didn't end well. (laughs) You've now written your book and you've interviewed, is it five friends or six friends?
4: Five. Five Five, friends.
0: Five friends. So uh, (laughs) is it now a bit awkward with friends kind of going, "Uh, i Oh,
3: the book. I'm not in the book.
7: (laughs) Well, now I have interviewed my best friend. So she knows she's my best friend and everyone knows that she's my best friend. The other friends are obviously very close friends of mine. But the reason I've picked them is because they represent something specific about an attitude to friendship. But there are some people who are very, very close to me who aren't in the book at all because they didn't want to be the weirdos they value their privacy and their anonymity
0: (laughs) (laughs) fair enough Uh, there's there's so many things I want to talk about the friendship thing but I need to talk about the audiobook you know it's one thing doing a podcast because you're talking to someone there's, there's back and forth and variety that way but when it's just your voice for you know seven eight nine hours how do you approach that
7: I find it a very therapeutic exercise and it's partly because my daily life is so full of lots of different things. And actually, it's it's really lovely to have four days in the diary where I'm just doing this one thing all day and I'm speaking out my words and it refamiliarizes me with my work. And a lot of what I'm writing about in Friendaholic Is an attempt to understand my own mania for friendship and for making connections and where that comes from. And spoiler alert, short version, it comes from the fact that I never fitted in as a child and I wanted to spend the rest of my life almost compensating (laughs) for that. So it's been quite cathartic. Having said that, it's also incredibly cringeworthy when you realise that you have used the same word oh, so many times. <laughs> it's awful, Graham. And I've I've read it so many times on the page, and I just haven't noticed before that I use nonchalant way more than anyone should use it, which is actually very nonchalant
3: of me.
0: I remember reading a novel once and finding out that everyone leaned. People were constantly leaning on chairs. They were oh, leaning on doorframes.
3: <laughs> Uh, Elizabeth there's some
0: questions we ask everyone on the podcast Uh, The first one is A book that opened up the world Of reading to you the, The one that made you fall in love with books
7: When I was about seven or eight, I started reading Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. And I still have an enormous amount of fondness and affection for that book. And there was something about Anne with an E, my middle name is Anne with an E, with her red hair and her feistiness, and she was an orphan in the world, but she never let that define her, that I really responded to and I wanted to be more like her.
0: And the second book, is there any particular book that you turn to in difficult times or is it fiction?
7: There's one book of poetry that I turn to again and again, and it's the collected poems of Rumi, the ancient Persian poet. And I think that he's got an extraordinarily comforting philosophical view of the world. And one of my favourite poems of all time is The Guest House by Rumi, which is about treating different emotions as if they are guests in your house, even the difficult ones, because they'll end up teaching you something.
0: And the final book, a book you recommend to everybody because you feel you need to wave its flag, not enough people know about it.
7: The book that I would like to press into people's hands that they might not have heard of is The Weather in the Streets by Rosamond Lehman, which was written in 1936, but reads like an extraordinarily modern novel. And a lot of the themes that she grapples with brilliantly are the themes of modern day relationships. This is a protagonist called Olivia. She's having an affair with a married man. And she goes through all of these experiences and this degree of shame whilst also trying to live a bohemian, different kind of life. And I love it. And Rosamund Lehman is an incredible writer where the quality of her prose will just draw you through.
0: Elizabeth Day on the book she loves and her own investigation into being a friend. We are nearly out of lies, but before we power down altogether, an avatar of audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson has just materialised, carrying her sceptre of statistics. Holly, who and what is on the leaderboard in the virtual world of Amazon and Audible?
2: (laughs) Well, let's start with Sarah Winman's arty novel, Still Life, which is doing well in the overall charts. And the audiobook is on the most sold and most read fiction charts. Interestingly, the print version was doing best at first, and now the audiobook has taken over. So a sort of ripple effect going on there. Um, And Sarah's an actress as well as an author. And looking at the reviews, her narration of the audiobook has been going down very well. So this book released back in 2021. The paperback came out about a year ago in March 22. So why is it in the charts now? Um, Well, it was an editor's pick on Amazon earlier this year. It's also been recommended on TV and it's been around in the charts since both of those things. I've also heard that it's being borrowed lots in libraries so I think we've got a word of mouth moment going on and it's very well rated and reviewed across the board. Um, The book also had quotes from the likes of someone called Graham Norton who called it sheer joy.
0: I did really enjoy reading it. It's a real, it's like a warm bath. You really love the characters, love spending time with it. It's great. Uh, all right, that's level one complete. What's level two?
2: Mm, so a bit of a change of pace, maybe. Um, Rob Delaney's book, A Heart That Works, is his memoir about how the death of a child feels, how it felt to lose his son, Henry, uh, which is absolutely heartbreaking. It's Rob's way of trying to explain and help people understand and there must be a lot of people experiencing a grief like this that can be so hard to talk about. And so it makes sense that this book is gently creeping up the non fiction charts as people discover it. To me, the book is an example of something sad and beautiful and ultimately filled with love.
0: I mean, I've only heard great things about it, and mm. yet I haven't. I sort of haven't worked up the courage, yeah, yeah. Mm. And I've read him. I've read shorter pieces he's written about Henry, and they yeah. are absolutely gorgeous, just lovely. Yeah. And uh, the final stage before we rage quit.
2: Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> so a little call out for a certain book to Tom Hanks' film adaptation, "A Man Called Uver by Frederick Backman, is back in the charts, in particular on the most sold fiction chart. They changed his name to Otto for the film, as book lovers might have noticed, as they move the whole thing from Sweden to America. I don't know what else they changed, as I haven't seen the film. But the book is about a very depressed and lonely man, but in various neighbours and people who come into his life, he finds that he has reasons to stay alive.
0: Okay. I'm the opposite. I've seen the film, but not read the book. <laughs>
2: Yeah, We're Tom Hanks is
0: too nice. <laughs> is. Mm. Uh, thank you very much, Holly. Don't forget you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible, and all the information you need will be right there. Plus, this podcast is now available both on the Audible platform and wherever you get your podcasts. So please do spread the word. And even better, go and give us a star rating and a review. It really helps more people to find us. Our clubbers have gone off to see if they can help Jeff's tortoise come out of its shell. So it just remains for me to thank Alex for helping me get through every level of this edition of the Graham Norton Book Club with all my health points. Thank you very much, Alex.
1: Oh, you're you're very welcome. I think I'll go and play a game of solitaire.
0: (laughs) Well, actually, that I do play. (laughs) Endlessly.
1: Endlessly, especially when on deadline, am I right?
0: Oh, see, I'm a gamer. Now we're gamers, Alex. We're gamers. We're we're,
1: we're new and modern. (laughs) And we're gamers. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. New Deal. New Deal. That's (laughs) us. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Please join us next time when, amongst other things, we'll be talking about Jeff's choice of the uncommon reader and therefore speaking to national treasure extraordinaire himself, Alan Bennett. I know. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye.
1: Goodbye.